Live from New York, I'm Zane Asher in for Julia Chatley. This is First Move and here is your need to know. Djokovic drama, the tennis star's Australian visa is cancelled again. And another apology, Boris Johnson's government says sorry over more party allegations. And cyber scare, Ukraine's government is hit by a widespread hack attack. It is Friday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to all of you watching First Move. Great to have you with us once again. Lots of market moving news this Friday, including the formal start of the U.S. earnings season and the latest look at U.S. retail sales for the all important holiday shopping period. Just released numbers show sales falling by a much weaker than expected 1.9 percent last month. All of this is banking giants. JP Morgan, Wells Fargo and Citigroup released better than expected fourth quarter profits and JP Morgan and Citi's results, however, coming in lower year over year. U.S. stocks on track for a week open as investors inspect the data. They're still passing through it. Stocks are set to extend yesterday's broad based losses that saw interest rate sensitive tech falling more than two and a half percent. The Nasdaq breaking a three day winning streak as hot inflation data raise the chances of aggressive Fed tightening. A number of Fed officials talking tough yesterday on the need to pull economic support quickly. Certainly a busy Friday for you ahead. Let's get right to the drivers. Novak Djokovic will be detained by Australian authorities on Saturday ahead of a federal court hearing. This comes hours after the country's immigration minister revoked the tennis star's visa just ahead of the Australian Open, saying it is in the public interest to do so. Let's bring in Amanda Davis. So, Amanda, at this point, in theory, Amanda, in theory, he's still set to play on Monday. But in reality, how likely is that really? Yeah, absolutely, Zane. Uh, Novak Djokovic is still there, listed in the draw as the number one seed to begin the defence of his uh, Australian Open title on Monday against fellow Serb Miamir Kekmanovic. But we very rarely, if ever, see Novak Djokovic give up a fight on the tennis court, and he is certainly not giving up the fight here to stay in Melbourne. Anybody who was expecting the decision by Australia's immigration minister on Novak Djokovic's visa would be the end of the matter, will be sadly disappointed. We did at 6pm on Friday evening hear from Alex Hawke, the immigration minister, saying, as you said, he has cancelled the visa on public interest grounds for reasons of health and good order. But it took just a matter of hours for Novak Djokovic's team to launch an appeal against that. The case was back in court with Novak Djokovic's lawyers talking about the decision being patently irrational at an emergency hearing. So, whilst Novak Djokovic isn't in detention this evening, the case has now been referred up to a federal court. We understand he's set to meet with Australian Border Force uh, officials for another immigration uh, hearing on Saturday morning. At that point, he is being expected to be taken back into detention ahead of an initial federal court hearing Saturday with a more final one on Sunday where perhaps a final decision will be made. There is no doubt the growing feeling is that this has just become a complete mess and nobody is coming out of it looking well, not 
the Australian governmental officials, not Tennis Australia, organisers of the Australian Open, not Novak Djokovic or the tennis community. The fact that the top-ranked male tennis player in the world at one of the biggest sporting events on the planet, that this is unfolding and continuing to unfold in the final hours before the start of the tournament really uh, just doesn't reflect well. Yeah, it's incredible that it's really come down to the wire. We'll see what happens over the next two days. Amanda Davis, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, number 10 Downing Street has apologised to Queen Elizabeth for two lockdown-breaking parties held the night before her husband's funeral. The COVID rules the government put in place meant that the following day, the Queen had to mourn Prince Philip alone by herself. It is the latest revelation that Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his staff enjoyed a series of social gatherings while the country was under lockdown. A lot of people, of course, see that as very unfair. Salma Daziz joins us live now from London. So, Salma, you and I have talked about the sort of string of scandals, the litany of scandals that have followed this prime minister for the past several months, if not longer. How on earth has, has he been able to keep his job through all of this? It's a good question, Zane. More I'm sorry's today from 10 Downing Street. More apologies. This one, though, is really going to hit hard, Zane. What the prime minister is uh, apologizing for today is a party that took place the day before the queen buried her husband. I want to bring that picture up uh, for our viewers of the queen sitting alone at the chapel by herself saying goodbye to her husband of more than seven decades with no one beside her, no one to comfort her. She is not alone in that. There are tens of thousands of people who have died of COVID over the last couple of years, and many of those families did not get to say goodbye to their loved ones. Many people in this country watch funerals over a live stream. So for 10 Downing Street to hold two parties on the night before the Queen buries her husband, is really going to strike at the heart of what this is about. It's about the sense that there is one rule for them and another rule for the rest of us. Now, Prime Minister Boris Johnson was not in attendance at this alleged party that occurred in April of last year. We understand that the party was held uh, as a leaving due for a communications chief, the former director of communications for Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and local media is full of salacious details about this party. I'm going to bring up one from The Telegraph, which broke this story, that uh, someone was sent out to get, with a suitcase, to get more booze. A suitcase full of booze. And that's really the headline you're seeing in this country today. Yet again, more stories, more allegations of parties occurring at Downing Street when people were making great sacrifices in this country. Prime Minister Boris Johnson right now is quite literally fighting for his political career. And more is to come, Zane, because there's an investigation underway right now into all of these alleged parties that span now over the course of two years, multiple lockdowns, multiple periods of this pandemic. There's a lot there that could come back to bite the prime minister. Yeah, and let's talk about that investigation that you just brought up. It's going to be conducted, or it is being conducted by Sue Gray, a senior civil servant. We're supposed to get the results of uh, that investigation, I think, early next week, Selma. If the results of that investigation prove that the prime minister and his office did indeed flout rules, what happens then? A lot is going to happen from that point forward. You have a couple of things that 
you need to find out with that investigation. How implicated is the prime minister? Because this is going to compromise his reputation, his credibility, and most importantly, his support within his own party. If the prime minister is directly implicated in this investigation, if he is directly accused of breaking COVID rules, you can watch and wonder if he's going to hold on to his seat. Then there's the possibility of a Met Police investigation, of the police getting involved if this is triggered into a, uh, moved forward essentially into a police investigation. So you have many aspects here that absolutely have the prime minister biting his nails. That investigation is something he kept pointing to, a way to kick the can down the road. At no point, I think any observer would tell you, seeing a prime minister who was in denial, 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 denial mode, did he really want to admit to something before this investigation? He clearly has. You have to wonder what pressure Prime Minister Boris Johnson is under internally. We know externally he now has the lowest approval ratings he's had since he took office. Look, this is going from bad to worse for the Prime Minister. Salman Aziz, uh, life for us. You've always done, I have to say, you've always done a fantastic job covering this story, Salma. Thank you so much. All right. Be afraid and wait for the worst. A threatening warning to Ukrainians after a widespread cyber attack brought down a number of government websites, including that of the foreign ministries. Sam Kali is in Kiev for us uh, with more on this story. So we don't know for sure, Sam, at this point, who's behind these cyber attacks, but all eyes right now are looking toward Russia. Walk us through it. Yeah, inevitably, Zane, given that uh, Russia has 120,000 troops uh, close to the Ukrainian border in a kind of uh, arc shape around the east of the country. It's got covert operators inside the Donbass region. It's backing rebels in Donbass. It's illegally annexed Crimea. That all happening after 2014. And it has form for much, much more sophisticated cyber attacks around the world, notably in the United States. Of course, the Ukrainians will be looking and instinctively blaming Russia for an attack that is threatening uh, intended to do uh, perhaps uh, raise tension psychological. There's no serious damage done. It's very low level, so close to a denial of service type attack affecting websites only. The government here insisting there's been no theft of personal details, no penetration of any serious ministries, no threat to critical national infrastructure. But in the context, of course, will be seen inevitably as part of the continuing psychological pressure being put on Ukraine uh, and part of the rhetoric that has emerged, Zainab, after a week of frantic diplomacy involving talks between Russia and the United States, uh, Russia and NATO, uh, emergency meetings held at the OSCE and so on, all intended to try to de-escalate, to get Russia to pull its troops back from a very threatening posture on the border with Ukraine, with the Russians countering that they would only do that if NATO rolls back its presence in Eastern Europe 30 years and promises in writing uh, that the Ukraine, uh, Georgia and other East, Eastern European nations uh, can never join NATO in the future, something that, of course, NATO has rejected out of hand. So the interesting issue now will be, all eyes will be on the Kremlin, really, as to what Vladimir Putin decides to do next. If this cyber uh, operation can be attributed to the Russians, then it needs to be seen in the context of that continued effort to maintain pressure and noise around this subject. Eh? Sam Kiley, live for us. Thank you so much. North Korea firing what appeared to be two ballistic missiles into the sea off its east coast. This comes after the U.S. imposed new sanctions against the North after Kim Jong-un's regime claimed it successfully test-fired a hypersonic missile this week. I want to bring in Selena Wang, joining us live now from Tokyo. So, Selena, at this point, what more do we know? 
Well, Zane, this is the third missile test from North Korea in just two weeks, and it came just hours after North Korea lashed out at the U.S. for its sanctions and threatened further action if the U.S. helps to impose further sanctions. Now, North Korea often argues that it has a right to develop its military to prevent prevent itself, protect itself against any potential aggression from South Korea and the United States. Now, the U.S. on Wednesday had imposed sanctions on North Korean and Russian individuals with ties to North Korea's missile programs. Now, this particular time, South Korea's military said that for this most recent test, it was launched into the sea off of its east coast to what presumed, they said presumably, were short-range ballistic missiles. Now, this also follows a test on Tuesday that North Korea claimed was a hypersonic missile. Now, experts say that this would be a game changer since hypersonic missiles can travel theoretically as fast as 20 times the speed of sound were very maneuverable in the air, but experts are doubtful that it was in fact actually that sophisticated. That being said, South Korea's military right. did say it was more advanced. All right, Selin Wang, uh, we actually unfortunately can't hear you. We're having audio problems with us, Selin Wang's microphone, so we're unfortunately going to have to move on. Uh, okay, these are the stories making headlines uh, around the world. Britain's Prince Andrew has been stripped of his military titles and his roles with royal charities after a New York judge ruled that a sex abuse lawsuit against him could move forward. That laid the ground for a possible public trial in the case. A source says the Queen's third child will no longer be referred to as His Royal Highness. China is denying allegations made by Britain's domestic spy agency that London-based solicitor Christine Ching Kui Li is a Chinese agent. The UK's MI5 says that Lee is active in UK politics, covertly establishing links with the current and aspiring members of parliament. China's foreign ministry says the claim is groundless and alarmist and that Beijing has no need for, quote, interference activists. Former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is believed to be negotiating a plea deal in his corruption case. Sources tell CNN the agreement could see one of the three cases against him shelved and the most serious charge of bribery dropped. There's apparently disagreement over the sentence he would face, which could determine if he can run for office again. All right, still to come here on First Move, a mixed bag for big banks. We dig into the latest earnings from JP Morgan, Wells Fargo and Citigroup. And the U.S. approves a new rapid test in the fight against Omicron. I speak with the CEO, manufacturer Siemens Healthineers. That's next. Welcome back to First Move, coming to you live from New York. U.S. stocks remain on track for a week open, a solid start to the fourth quarter earnings season, but a big retail sales miss. U.S. sales falling almost 2% last month, chalk it up to perhaps the spread of Omicron and consumers shopping early. All the major U.S. averages are now lower for the year, with tech performing the worst, down more than 5%. Major U.S. banks, however, enjoying a strong start to 2022, with many big names up double digits. Banks, unlike the riskier tech names, thrive in a higher rate environment. They closed out 2021 in certainly a pretty strong position, too, with Citigroup, J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo all reporting better than expected results. But rising costs are biting into profits. Trading results are also coming under pressure as well. Alison Kosick joins us live now. So, Alison, you've been 
Digging into the numbers for Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, Citigroup, just walk us through what we're learning about these earnings. So JP Morgan's really coming into focus, Zane. Um, we are seeing shares of JP Morgan right now falling more than 4% in the pre-market, and that's despite a strong fourth quarter uh, report card coming from JP Morgan, including a $10.4 billion profit that exceeded uh, forecasts. Earnings show the bank didn't take a, an expected uh, hit on credit losses. In fact, the bank wound up taking a $1.3 billion benefit from releasing reserves for loan losses that never materialized. So its earnings actually were down 14 percent in the fourth uh, from a year ago in the same quarter, the fourth quarter, and that's because of trading revenue falling. Um, trading actually revenue powered J.P. Morgan uh, over the past couple of years. So now we are seeing uh, it kind of trail off from the strong pace that it's been on. So that's part of the reason we are seeing shares in the pre-market falling. We did see shares take a leg lower, though, in the pre-market as uh, we got on this media call with uh, J.P. Morgan's CFO, Jeremy Barnum, who uh, basically said inflation could wind up affecting J.P. Morgan by offsetting some of the gains it would see because of high interest rates. Um, Barnum saying that the pressures on expenses, uh, the pressures from inflation would hurt uh, expenses and leave what he called sub-target returns. That we saw uh, certainly hit investors. Uh, They started selling in the pre-market J.P. Morgan shares. A bright spot for earnings, uh, loan growth returned to part of J.P. Morgan's businesses. Its earnings show average loans rose 6% in the fourth quarter. Um, You know, J.P. Morgan and other big banks, as you know, are benefiting from rising interest rates, they make a bigger profit on those higher on those loans if there are higher interest rates. We've also seen commercial lending rates rise as well in anticipation of the Federal Reserve raising interest rates this year as well. One theme that I am seeing, however, um, is that consumers are still stockpiling cash. At J.P. Morgan in particular, deposits were up 18 percent, and that's happening in its wealth management division. Zane, I also saw a similar trend in the earnings of Wells Fargo. Uh, and then let's talk about J.P. Morgan specifically, because uh, Jamie Dimon is sounding very upbeat, not just about earnings, but about the state of the U.S. economy overall. Walk us through that. Yeah, J.P. Morgan is often seen as a bellwether and a barometer of the health of the U.S. economy. So when Jamie Dimon speaks, we, we kind of listen. And he did sound upbeat in a release as uh, J.P. Morgan released its earnings. He sounded upbeat not just about the quarter, but about the full year of 2021, saying this, that the economy continues to do quite well despite headwinds related to Omicron, inflation and supply chain bottlenecks. Credit continues to be healthy, he said, and we remain optimistic on U.S. economic growth. So it's a very different tune that Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, is singing compared to last year when he called loan growth, quote, challenging. And that was due in part to government stimulus programs, which, you know, sent cash to businesses and consumers and wound up resulting in stagnant loan growth. But if you look at how banks have done, they've rallied so far this year up until today. It looks like it's going to be a rough day for the banks today. And as you showed earlier, banks have outperformed the market over the past six months. Zane? Alison Kosick, Life for Us, thank you so much. And investors hope that strong profits and solid economic fundamentals can help offset Fed moves to tighten financial conditions. Christina Huber joins us live now. She's the chief market strategist at Investio. Uh, Christina, thank you so much for being with us. So what do the earnings, first of all, we're going to start with the bank earnings. What do the earnings from the big banks tell us right now about the overall outlook for the U.S. economy? 
Well, certainly the earnings tell us that we are on the road to normalization. Um, and that by uh, and by that I mean that all the kinds of aberrations we saw as part of the pandemic uh, are starting to dissipate. Um, think about trading revenues that went up a lot during the pandemic. Um, that was a, a, an unusual environment. I would call it hyper trading, and so that's coming down. And the expectations are that it'll come back down more to more normal levels. Um, there's an expectation that we're going to start to see rates go up. Of course, that's all part of the normalization of the economy um, as we move away from pandemic conditions um, to the kind of environment we had, the normal environment we had in 2019. So that carries with it some positives and some pain. Right, because um, let's talk about rising interest rates um, as well, because the banks so far have certainly benefited from loan growth, but they're set to really benefit from uh, rising interest rates. Um, just explain to us how much and what sort of revenues um, increases the banks could see. Um, well, it, it could be significant. Again, it really depends on where the rate environment goes this year. But we know that net interest income is important. That's the spread between the uh, interest uh, the banks are getting on the assets they own, including mortgages, um, uh, versus the the interest that they're paying out on deposits. Um, so when rates go up, that tends to be a positive. Um, that could be quite significant for banks. Um, at the same time, though, the, always the concern when the Fed raises rates is that it doesn't raise rates so much that it chokes off uh, the economic cycle and essentially plunges an economy into recession, which could be, of course, very problematic for banks. Um, they have benefited from improving credit quality. So it is always a, a very fine line that the Fed walks uh, in terms of raising rates and, and certainly helping banks, but possibly creating even bigger problems um, by raising rates too much and choking off the economic cycle. Yeah, as you mentioned, that is a very important fine line that the Fed um, ends up having to walk. So what do you think um, what do you think the stock market reaction overall will be this year, just in terms of how volatile the stock market might be because of uh, rising Fed rates um, and also the Fed shrinking its balance sheet, too? Um, well, certainly my expectation is that we experience uh, a deceleration in economic growth. That makes sense. We're withdrawing stimulus, not just the monetary stimulus you talked about, uh, raising rates, um, uh, tapering uh, the balance sheet, uh, uh, tapering asset purchases, and of course, shrinking the balance sheet. But we also are removing fiscal stimulus. Um, so that's uh, that's likely to have an impact on the economy. I think we'll still be above trend growth, um, but it will um, we'll see a deceleration. Uh, and in a slowdown environment, that phase of the economic cycle, um, typically we do see a convergence in asset class returns. Um, equities um, are not going to have the kind of robust returns, uh, typically, that we would that we saw, for example, in 2021. That's okay. That's part of this environment. Um, I still expect positive returns, but I think we should anticipate more muted returns um, and not that big a difference between, for example, fixed income returns and equity returns. Okay, so more muted returns. But what types of stocks do you think are going to be that much more vulnerable to hawkish uh, Fed policy? Uh, well, the conventional wisdom suggests that tech is most vulnerable, right? Because when 
um, you know, they're high valuation, long duration. So when rates go up, um, uh, there's a, a re-rating. And of course, that hurts tech stocks. And we did see a little of that. And we've seen that in the past as well. Um, but I would argue, actually, that once we go through a short-term digestion period, there's still opportunity for tech. And in fact, um, for growth and defensives in general this year. Um, the early part of the year, we're likely to see cyclical, out, cyclical outperformance. But because of this slowdown environment that we're in for developed markets, I would anticipate that growth performs better, larger cap performs better, including areas like tech, like healthcare. All right, Christina Hooper, live for us there. Thank you so much. Thank you. And stay with First Move. The Market Open is up next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Friday ahead of a long holiday weekend. Monday is actually Martin Luther King Day in the United States and stocks currently on track to end the week on a down note. All the major averages falling in early trading with tech stocks pacing the declines. A weaker than expected read on U.S. retail sales, certainly not helping sentiment at all. Banking giants J.P. Morgan and Citigroup pulling back in early trading. Wells Fargo faring better. You see it's up slightly there. Good fourth quarter earning results from the banks overall. Investors perhaps focusing on pressures going forward, including uncertain loan growth, higher costs and weaker trading volumes. All right, back to our top story. Novak Djokovic expected to be detained Saturday ahead of a court hearing. This comes after Australia cancelled the world premiere at the world number one tennis player's visa for a second time, just three days before the Australian Open. Paula Hancock's is live for us in Melbourne uh, with more on this. So at this point, obviously, his lawyers have appealed. Is there any chance? I mean, there's only three days to go. Is there any chance that he could win this appeal? Just walk us through it. Well, Zane, he's certainly fighting it, as, as we all expected him to do. So it's uh, less than uh, seven hours now that we will uh, be, uh, we understand that Novak Djokovic will have to go uh, for an interview with immigration officials. This was all decided in a hearing this Friday night, which uh, was convened just three hours after the immigration minister, Alex Hawke, decided to cancel uh, the visa. So what we understand is he hasn't been detained up until this point. He is still staying at his rented accommodation here in Melbourne. But then 8 a.m. Saturday morning local time, he will be uh, interviewed once again by immigration officials. He will be officially in detention. He will be escorted by two Australia Border Force officials to then go to his lawyers. Uh, and now this has been also referred, this case, to a higher court. Uh, it's been referred to the, the Federal Court of Australia and that uh, court has a listing for 10.15 in the morning uh, for the initial hearing for this case. Uh, so this is moving fairly quickly. The immigration uh, minister deciding that he was going to cancel the visa, he said, uh, on health and good order grounds on the basis that it was in the public interest to do so. Now, we did get some insight into uh, what those reasons might have been this Friday evening uh, when we were listening to uh, that hearing. The lawyers for Djokovic alluded to the fact that the minister was talking uh, about Djokovic being in the country would, quote, excite anti-vax sentiment in the community. So that gives us some idea of one of the arguments that the government might be giving uh, in order to, to try and push this, uh, this cancellation of the visa through. So we will be hearing more uh, through the courts on Saturday. The lawyers for Djokovic also said in the hearing Friday night that time is of the essence, as you might imagine. The Australian Open starts on Monday. Uh, Djokovic is slated to play in the first round 
on Monday, his lawyers saying they would like a decision before that, Zane. And what's been the reaction to this latest uh, decision from the Australian public? Well, this has been playing out for some time. So I think for, for some, it, it's uh, a, a sense of relief that a decision has been made. Uh, many I've spoken to have said that this isn't good for anyone. This is embarrassing for the Australian government. It's embarrassing for Novak Djokovic. And it's certainly embarrassing for, for Tennis Australia, uh, who hold the, uh, the Australian Open. But there has been an overwhelming feeling uh, from, from those I've spoken to that, that there shouldn't be special rules for, for certain celebrities or for people coming in. The fact that Novak Djokovic decided not to vaccinate himself and came in to the country knowing that the rules were you have to be fully vaccinated or you have to have um, a medical exemption, why there's a medical reason you can't be vaccinated. Now, Novak Djokovic and his lawyers say that he did have a medical exemption and they believe that was enough. Uh, but certainly the feeling uh, among many in Australia is that there shouldn't be a, a different set of rules uh, for, for some people coming in. Now, we heard from Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister as well, saying that Australians have made many sacrifices during this pandemic and they rightly expect the result of those sacrifices to be protected. Now, of course, there are others uh, who believe that this has just dragged on too long and that he should be allowed to play at the Australian Open. Uh, but uh, I think looking at some local polls, the majority, it appears at this point, uh, believe that, uh, that he should have had his, uh, his visa cancelled if he did not meet the criteria for coming in. Zane? Paula Hancock, live for us there. Thank you. Right, cleanup efforts are underway in Kazakhstan after mass protests in several parts of the country triggered a violent government crackdown. The resident says it could take at least eight months to restore the damage done in the largest city, Almaty. Fred Pleitgen is there. He joins us live now. So, Fred, just set the scene uh, from, from where you are. Earlier in the day, just a few hours ago, I saw you outside a massively charred building. I think that was the mayor's office. You're absolutely right, Zen. That was the mayor's office. And I think when you hear the authorities uh, here in the country, in Kazakhstan, say that they believe it could take up to eight months to really uh, restore everything and to rebuild everything, it certainly seems as though that could very well be the case. There are uh, several government buildings just here in Almaty that certainly seem uh, very much uh, damaged by those violent protests that happened here. But of course, similar things happen in other cities as well. However, what we did see today is also was a massive government effort to get things underway and to clean things up as fast as possible. Here's what we saw. Inside the charred carcass of the Almaty mayor's office, a massive cleanup is now underway. By hand and by machine, work has started to repair the damage caused by violent protests that gripped Kazakhstan. CNN is the first media outlet allowed inside to survey the extent of the damage. The authorities have brought in dozens, if not hundreds, of workers to clean up the aftermath of what were those street battles here in Kazakhstan's largest city of Almaty. And it's really remarkable to see the full scale of the destruction here in the mayor's office. As the authorities here say, rioters entered this building and set fire to all of it. Kazakhstan's officials say they were dangerously close to losing control, not just here in Almaty, but other places across the country. Kazakhstan's president said protests that were originally against high fuel prices were hijacked by what he calls, quote, terrorists. He issued a shoot-to-kill order and summoned an international military force led by Russia. We prevented dangerous threats for our country's security. 
As part of the counter-terrorist mission, we are trying to identify people who committed those crimes. The government says things are now largely under control, and there is evidence of that across the city. Life is almost back to normal. The Russian-led military force has started its withdrawal, although that process is set to take another nine days. But authorities say their crackdown will continue. Around 10,000 people have been detained and more than 160 killed. Opposition activist Jean Bolat Mamai was at the protests. He says things started peacefully, but then he too was beaten by what he calls provocateurs. He provided us with this video seeming to show what happened and these photos of what he looked like after the attack. Mamai says he believes the rioting was a pretext for a violent crackdown. The government decided to slaughter their own people. And uh, uh, the one more great problem, I think, uh, that uh, it was done not only with the help of uh, Kazakhstani security forces, but with the interference of uh, Russian troops. Kazakhstan's leadership denies attacking peaceful protesters and says they've launched a full investigation into who was behind the violence that erupted. Meanwhile, the country's president has vowed to improve people's living conditions and rebuild the sites damaged as fast as possible. And I do think, Zane, that it is really part of the government's strategy to really show that it's starting to rebuild uh, as fast as possible. And this might be the beginning, uh, as they put it, uh, of a new era here uh, in uh, Kazakhstan. Certainly the government has said, the president has said that there are going to be political reforms, there are going to be social and economic reforms as well to make sure that more people actually get a better living uh, than they had in the past. But one of the things that we also have to keep in mind, which is very important, especially for Kazakhstan as well, is the fact that this country is an economic power house here in this region, and quite frankly, also to a certain extent globally as well. There are a lot of international investors here. This country does have a lot of very important raw commodities. And one of the things the government has told me they want to show is they want to show that they are reliable as a business partner and that things here are going to continue and that there's going to be no stop to doing business here in Kazakhstan as well, Zane. Fred Plagan, live for us. Thank you. Right, up next, the U.S. approves a new at-home test as it grapples with a COVID surge. I speak with the CEO of the company behind it. The U.S. is grappling with a shortage of COVID-19 tests just as the Omicron variant drives a surge in cases. On Thursday, the Biden administration said it will double the number of tests it's buying to one billion, although it's not yet clear when exactly they'll be available. Testing capacity was given another boost last week when the U.S. approved a new at-home rapid test by Siemens Healthineers. Joining me live now is Bernard Montag, the CEO of Siemens Healthineers. So Bernard, thank you so much for being with us. Just talk to, talk to us a little bit more about uh, these tests run by your company that will be available uh, in the US, just in terms of things like how long it takes to receive a result and how they compare to other rapid tests, at-home rapid tests that are already on the market. Yeah, so thank you for having um, me and um, the test we are providing has, uh, um, has greatly contributed already um, in dealing with the pandemic in Europe, yeah, where we um, um, have um, supplied the test to many European nations, like also for the school systems for the last um, 12 months. We have now um, approval also for the US. 
Um, it is a test which delivers um, results within 15 minutes and it is um, seen um, and evaluated as one of the most accurate um, and, um, and reliable tests on the market. Um, and what about its ability to detect specifically the Omicron variant? How sensitive is it to that variant? So we have also um, had a very, very um, close eye on this. We have an, a research team which looks at and follows the variants and um, it has, is providing similar results or more or less the same level of quality when it comes to Omicron as it does for Delta and the, and the previous variants. Will you have to possibly update these rapid tests as more and more variants continue to emerge? We have, um, as I said, a very, very um, close eye on this and a dedicated team. So far, this was um, not necessary. Um, if um, future variants would make it necessary, we would, of course, do that. You know, one of the issues I think that people worry about with at-home testing is the accuracy. Um, I know that, you know, your at-home test kits are sensitive, as you mentioned, to the Omicron variant. However, you know, we all sort of are aware that PCR testing is considerably more accurate than rapid testing. Um, just explain to us what the standards are for being able to provide a rapid at-home test kit in the US and sort of the accuracy of the re results. So, so for example, how many sort of false positives um, during sort of trials did you guys end up seeing? Yeah, I mean, here we are in the in the um, among the best tests, and and I think the the uh, we need to reframe the discussion here a little bit because when it comes to comparing um, PCR to antigen tests or rapid tests, it is about having tests which are which give an immediate result, um, so that you um, and which you can perform by yourself. So it is really not. It is a little bit like comparing apples to oranges. And um, from that point of view, an antigen test plays a significant role which a PCR test cannot play. And that is you do it yourself and you have an immediate result. Yeah? Um, and um, that is why they play such an important role in the situation um, of a pandemic. So you're saying it doesn't, it's not really fair to compare them because yes, PCR tests are more accurate, but at-home rapid tests play an important part um, because, you know, you can do it yourself, you can do it easily and you can do it at home. Um, mm -hmm. As more and more people get boosted, as more and more people get vaccinated overall, how do you think that will affect the demand for at-home testing? See, I mean, we will, I think what we, what we currently see with the Omicron wave is, is a bit of an unprecedented development, yeah? Um, and... But we know yeah, that um, testing remains a very, very important um, tool to fight the pandemic. Um, we know um, that, um, that um, also vaccinated people um, can, um, can carry the virus. Yeah? So from that point of view, for the foreseeable future of the next, uh, for, um, in, in, in this year, or at least in the first half of this year, um, testing and, and, and especially antigen testing or rapid testing will continue to play a major role in society. All right, Bernard Montag, CEO of Siemens Health and Ears, thank you so much.
All right, coming up next here on First Move, Hong Kongers are feeling the pressure when it comes to paying for everyday goods as prices surge because of supply issues. We hear from people in the city next. To Hong Kong, where the city's strict COVID policy is taking a significant toll on the economy. Flights bringing in goods and supplies are being cut, meaning consumers are having to pay more for everyday items. Chris Liu Stout has more. Empty terminals, bored staff, and flight displays with cancellation after cancellation. Two years of pandemic have emptied what was once one of the busiest airports in the world. As the city tightens restrictions amid an Omicron outbreak, flagship carrier Cathay Pacific is slashing flights, with air cargo capacity cut to 20% of pre-pandemic levels. It's putting pressure on supplies of fresh produce and a plethora of goods not made in Hong Kong. The Hong Kong Transport and Housing Bureau tells CNN it has been closely communicating with the aviation industry with a view to maintaining smooth air cargo services into and out of Hong Kong and addressing the basic daily needs of society while safeguarding public health. The city's economy is highly dependent on trade, relying on imports for food and consumer goods. And with the squeeze on cargo, industry experts have warned of a sharp rise in prices in what was already one of the most expensive cities in the world. Hong Kong's logistics trade body chief says shipping costs is expected to go up 20 to 30 percent and such increases will be passed on to Hong Kong consumers. Cathay says the sharp cargo reductions will likely remain in place until March. The announcement follows temporary flight bans on several countries, including the U.S. and U.K., and new quarantine requirements for aircrew. Hong Kong is holding firm to a zero-COVID policy with strict quarantines and border restrictions. And while the tough policy has saved lives, it has also isolated the once thriving business and logistics hub. In November, FedEx said it would close its crew base in the city. Even airmail to countries like the U.K. has been suspended. International trade groups have warned Hong Kong could lose talent and investment unless it relaxes its restrictions. I remain concerned about Hong Kong's position uh, as a hub long term because of the very uh, strict policies and strict zero COVID strategy of Hong Kong and, and the and its uh, lack of a, of a recovery so far. Basically, the gap between Hong Kong and other hub airports in Asia Pacific uh, is widening. The Hong Kong government maintains the curbs are essential for public health and to allow the city to reopen to mainland China. Well, there's nothing we can do because we have to fight the epidemic. A once glittering international finance center is now locked in a zero COVID bubble. So residents make do with what they have. Like Richard Ekebis, a two-star Michelin chef at one of the most celebrated restaurants in Hong Kong, working with a more limited and pricier supply of fresh produce. Pricing has gone up significantly, up to 35 percent, due to shortage of supplies. Shipping freight, that went up tenfold. So yeah, that, that, that definitely has significantly impacted price structure uh, uh, in, in, in everything we get in Hong Kong. He now uses spiny lobster from Hong Kong instead of French blue from Brittany. So a locally sourced Hong Kong lobster is still worth two Michelin stars. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Finally on First Move, a cup of coffee can feel essential when you start work as early as our team here in New York. But most of us don't get the experience Richard Quest got when he asked for a coffee in Dubai while reporting on the expo there. Take a look. I want a cup of coffee and this contraption 
is going to make it for me. All right, here we go. And I'm going to choose a latte, regular milk. Well, I'm getting to worry about that, do we know? Okay, check out. Yo, you want to take a picture? No, no, not, not in the light. So first of all, hang on, sorry. Keep recording. Clean. All right, let's go. There's my coffee. Where's it going to give it me? Here we are. Oh, it's going to go here. Thank you. I'm saying thank you to a robot. Thank you very much. Cheers. That is a thing of beauty. Although I must confess, it's a bit weird to drink your own face. But I do taste very good. Oh, sorry, Richard. That is a thing of beauty. Uh, Richard Quest scoring points there for modesty. All right, that is it for the show here on First Move. I'll be back with you in a couple of hours uh, with One World. Connect the World with Halagirani is up next. You are, of course, watching CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.